This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, providing aid and intelligence to Ukraine while managing global public opinion, what the U.S. should share with the world and what's worth keeping quiet. Then, the change in strategy as the war in Ukraine moves east will break down the advantages and drawbacks of Ukraine's unconventional tactics. And is the Islamic State in decline, or do they still pose a security threat to American interests? We'll check in with a counterterrorism expert. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. President Biden has signed a new bill to allow arms lending to Ukraine. The modern-day Lend-Lease Act has escalated U.S. involvement in the war. Angela Stent is a non-resident senior fellow at Brookings. She's the former National Intelligence Officer for Russia and Eurasia at the National Intelligence Council and author of the book Putin's World, Russia Against the West and with the Rest. Angela, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. So what does the new arms lending bill mean for the number and type of weapons sent to Ukraine? Well, we're trying to provide the Ukrainians with as much as we can to keep pushing back against the Russians. So it's the anti-tank, anti-aircraft, it's artillery. They need a lot of artillery uh, to push back against the Russians. So this is uh, more sophisticated weaponry. And as you said, it's lend-lease evoking a World War II. Of course, Putin is saying that he's fighting World War II against the Ukrainians, and we're saying we're fighting World War II, uh, or we're helping the Ukrainians to fight World War II against the Russians. Um, and so they will, uh, we will continue to supply them uh, with all these weapons, uh, as long as I know the Senate's uh, voted on it. I think Rand Paul's put a hold on it for the moment, but hopefully um, it should be voted on by or cleared by next week. You know, how has Russia responded to the, the arms lending bill, if at all? I mean, how, and how have they reacted to the more sophisticated American weapons flowing into Ukraine? Well, so the Russians have been reacting ever since we really started supplying the Ukrainians with um, more weaponry. They're saying this is a proxy war. Uh, this is NATO threatening Russia. I mean, they said that before the war began. They're saying that more now. And then they're saying we will take appropriate measures to retaliate against this. So there are lots of threats there, but it's really unclear what they can do. They're pretty much bogged down in Ukraine. They're making very slow progress at the moment, so they can hardly open a new front somewhere else, but certainly the threats are there. And as you said, I mean, Russia is saying that this is a proxy war with the U.S. I mean, for all intents and purposes, are we in a proxy war with Russia? Well, it's it's it certainly looks as if we and we are. I mean, the the U.S. Uh, would not say that we we are in a war with Russia, but since Russia, you know, says that Ukraine is a you know a puppet of the United States, it it does look as if it's it's a proxy war being fought on Ukrainian soil. But of course, the Biden administration has been very careful to say there will be no American soldiers there, so that it will not be a real war with Russia. You know, some news outlets have reported that the U.S. had shared intelligence with Ukraine that led to the deaths of several Russian generals and the sinking of that cruiser, Muscova. What effect has that information being public had? 
So I think it's very unfortunate um, these kinds of uh, this kind of information should not be made public, uh, and uh, you know the government should do what it does without talking about it. So I think what what that has done is then for those people who criticize the United States for uh, supporting Ukraine, and obviously for the Russians, um, that then reinforces uh, the the story that this is a war uh, that the United States is sort of indirectly waging on Russia. Uh, and certainly the Russians have, have again said that this emphasizes uh, their view that they're threatened by the West, which is what they've been saying all along. And I wonder how that information being public impacts other countries like India or China. So, you know, India and China, neither of them have condemned Russia, neither of them have sanctioned Russia. Uh, the Chinese repeat all the Russian propaganda about uh, this being a war uh, to stop NATO from threatening Russia. Um, and so I think it would reinforce for them um, that, uh, that, you know, that the U.S. is on some level a party in this conflict because of its support for Ukraine. And I think it hasn't done anything, particularly in the Indian case, which is after all an ally of the United States uh, with Australia and Japan in the Quad arrangement. Um, it hasn't done anything to change India's view of that uh, and to come out and criticize Russia. And do you think that, um, you know, I wonder if you agree with critics that say that the administration should stop worrying so much about escalation and just focus on Ukrainian victory? I think we, we can't stop worrying about escalation, but I think we've been too quick to respond every time Putin says something threatening to then rethink what we're doing. The administration seems to believe that if we continue to support Ukraine, it can win. I think that then you have to question what does winning mean? And it's not clear that that's possible, uh, but certainly that is, the, that is the goal now. So I think you can't dismiss what Russia says, but I think, you know, we have to formulate our policy and our support for Ukraine, you know, based on what we believe is best for the situation there and not spend too much time worrying about these Russian threats. And I wonder, I, you know, you wrote a book, uh, you know, Putin against the West. Is there anything that the West can do to change that kind of um, idea that he has, that it's just, it's him against us? or? Or is this just paranoia and there's really nothing that the, the West can do about that? Well, don't forget, Putin started off life as a KGB case officer. And when he came to power, he said, you know, I was trained that NATO was the enemy. So he has always had um, a, a rather aggressive view of the West. Uh, he has always believed that the West is out to diminish Russia. And he's become more and more convinced of that as he has gotten older and, yes, more paranoid. So I don't really think there's anything that we could do now that would change his calculus. He believes uh, that he has to prevail uh, and that the West is the enemy. He's nearly 70 years old. I'm not sure that he's going to change his mind about that. And what do you recommend to the Biden administration beyond what they're already doing as far as weapons and intelligence sharing? I think they have to continue what they're doing. And then I think the, the challenge is to maintain Western unity. And so far, we have maintained it with our European allies and our Asian allies. But that's going to get more difficult as time goes on. And we suffer from inflation and high gas prices and supply chain problems. It's going to be harder to keep that coalition together. Uh, so I think that'll be one of the main challenges going forward. All right, Angela. Nice to talk to you. Thanks so much Thank for being you. on the program. Coming next on Government Matters, the status of Ukraine's military capabilities and strategy as the war moves to the east. Stay with us.
As Russia's war enters its third month, the focus has shifted towards eastern Ukraine. That change in terrain means Ukraine will need a new strategy to fend off Russian aggressors. Margarita Konaev is an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security. Rita, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So the Russian military entered Crimea in 2014 and really faced very little resistance. What has the what was the state of Ukraine's military then and how has it changed over these last 8 years? That's a really important question because I think it also really helps us understand the trajectory of this war and a lot of the surprises that we've seen uh, in the beginning and going into the third month, as you said. In 2014, the Ukrainian military was small, poorly trained, poorly equipped, and riddled by corruption and general ineffectiveness and lack of professionalism. Since then, the changes have been really robust and fundamental. And we're not just talking about the size and levels of professionalism and the new equipment that have come about, but even the general structure of the military, the fact that they've introduced elements that resemble the command and control structures of NATO countries and the United States, uh, part of it through collaboration, close collaboration with NATO and United States trainers and military uh, professionals that have worked with the Ukrainian military. So we've seen massive improvements in capabilities, in equipment, in professionalisms, in the officer ranks, in the officer corps, and generally in leadership. So that kind of helps And us Rita, you know, Ukraine now has special operations forces. That was exactly. created in 2015, and they're trained by the U.S. What do we know about those capabilities? We know that they've played a really important role in this war. And unfortunately, that also means that they've taken the brunt of the casualties because they have been so much on the front lines. We know less from open source about the type of uh, operations that they've been conducting potentially beyond Ukrainian lines, maybe even in deep in Russian territory. Um, that is, of course, not something that is being confirmed in open source, but there's some, let's say, uh, suspicion that they've also been active there. But inside Ukraine, they're absolutely been instrumental to this continuous excellent performance of the Ukrainian forces. You write that morale is a force multiplier and that Ukrainian fighters are highly motivated and unified. Do you think they'll be able to keep up that momentum as the war drags on? That's an important question, and it's hard to tell because the war has been so brutal and just so violent and very, very difficult on the population itself. But from all the indicators that we've seen now, morale seems to keep up. I think part of it is a really fundamental understanding that Ukraine is fighting for its survival, not just for its territory and not just for any sort of expansion pay or even its sovereignty. It's feels that it's fighting for its survival as an independent nation. So that inevitably fuels morale. You know, in the first part of the war, Ukraine's military adopted unconventional tactics, taking advantage of its small and flexible force structure. Now that the war has moved to eastern Ukraine, will these continue to benefit Ukraine as the fighting continues, or will there be a major pivot? Some of those factors will continue to be important. That flexible command and control that really played to their strengths in the beginning of the war and the 
first couple of months is going to be important. Some of those asymmetrical tactics, uh, like uh, hitting the supply lines and then retreating into the cities and retreating into the forest around, that is going to be a little harder to execute because you just definitely don't have the same cover and concealment uh, that open that open space essentially doesn't allow in the same way that the terrain of the previous uh, stages of operations have. At this stage of the war, the equipment is going to matter even more, the military power and equipment. Uh, that's why the continuous aid that Ukraine is receiving from the United States and the West is really, really critical. I was going to ask you specifically about different weapons and trainings. Can you be a little bit more specific about what you think that they will need going forward? They will continue to need more artillery. Firepower is critical. But at the same time, because Ukraine military, even though it's become much more professionalized and capable and larger, uh, there is a numbers question. And Ukraine cannot afford massive losses. So it's not just a question of firepower, it's a question of distance. So you need these types of weapons that can strike at heavy equipment of the Russians, but they can also do that from a distance. That's why you saw the emphasis of delivering the hot visors to uh, the Ukrainian forces and doing it fast. So a lot of the equipment that they're getting already, it's a question of continuous delivery uh, because this war is probably going to go on for a while. But Rita, isn't it harder now to get those weapons to the front lines given the location? It is. It is increasingly more difficult because uh, the location, the eastern Ukraine is farther away from the borders that Ukraine shares with its Western allies and neighbors. At the same time, those uh, supply lines, they go through Ukrainian territory. So as long as those supply lines are effectively defended and Russia doesn't actively target them, then Ukrainian can continue, uh, can continue supplying its forces in the east. All right, well, Rita, nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Coming up next, a status check on the Islamic State and over the horizon, counterterrorism. We'll be right back. While the Islamic State and jihadist terror groups have faded from the headlines, my guest says that their influence persists around the globe. Catherine Zimmerman is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she focuses on counterterrorism. Catherine, welcome to the program. So good to be here. So what is the current state of the Islamic State, and do they still pose a threat to the U.S. and U.S. interests? The Islamic State has been degraded in its core leadership in Iraq and Syria. That's certainly evident from the numerous U.S. counterterrorism operations and, of course, through our Syrian and Iraqi partners. But the challenge that we face is the Islamic State is growing in Afghanistan and across Africa. It's alive and well. So are they in a position right now to attack Americans, a, a centrally located planning, if you will, to attack Americans? There's not evidence yet that they are doing that the way that we would think of a major terror attack from the Islamic State. But I think one of the key challenges with this organization is how it's inspired individuals to conduct attacks like the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando that killed upwards of 50 people, uh, which would be a, a significant attack on American soil. 
What areas of the globe are you most concerned about? The places I'm most concerned about are the places where governance is poor and the security forces to fight the Islamic State are weak. That's Afghanistan, where we see the Taliban struggling to contain a growing Islamic State threat, and in the Sahel and Nigeria in particular, where the Islamic State is strongest and expanding rapidly. You know, Islamic State leader el-Baghdadi was killed in an American raid in 2019. What do we know about the leadership of the organization since then? The leadership has remained very much out of sight. A lot of that has to do with the counterterrorism pressure that it's been under uh, by the U.S. and our counterterrorism partners. Uh, but the interesting thing is that with the Islamic State, it always has somebody waiting in the wings. Uh, so it's resilient to these strikes. Do they still have popular support in the areas that they operate in? They do and they don't. And that's the interesting thing about the Islamic State. There are people that do not buy the ideology and what the global jihad is selling. But when you look at the reasons why individuals fight with the Islamic State, it's because the Islamic State is offering them a way to contest either the Taliban in Afghanistan uh, or the Nigerian army that has aggrieved their, their community. Um, so it's that message that allows people to join them. But what are the trends? Are they gaining in popularity? Is their popularity waning? Their popularity is actually, I think, gaining in, in areas where they've been able to tap into local anti-government sentiments. The COVID pandemic has exacerbated that with government responses and this idea that resources aren't being properly expended. And the, the frankly, the, the Taliban's crackdown in, in certain communities in Afghanistan has also created a lot of spaces and opportunities for the Islamic State to recruit. And what about funding? Has that been going up? Are, are they struggling for, uh, for funds? With these organizations, they rely on donor funds and also on being able to tax the local population. Since that, that's why taking back terrain is so important. Uh, the United States and our partners have cracked down on the global financing network. There was just a new round of sanctions against financiers for the Islamic State. Uh, but the challenge we face is most of their money comes from checkpoints and from access to local resources, and we see them going after those resources, especially in Africa. So let's turn to American strategy now. Now that we do not have boots on the ground, we're relying very heavily on over-the-horizon drone attacks um, on terror targets. How has that been going? What do you think of that strategy? The strategy is the best we can do with the resources our leadership and, and they say our public are willing to put toward this problem set. And I think that's the challenge we see. The over the horizon posture is something the military can do. It assumes a lot of risks because we lose insight into what these groups are doing on the ground. It also doesn't solve the problem. And that's my key complaint. It means that we're going to be doing these drone strikes for, 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 uh, for however long it needs to happen. So what are the options? Because we're not going to put boots on the ground. As you said, the public is not going to support that. Um, you know, what do we do? The options really are what we are doing. And I think that's the challenge. We're trying to fix this problem by bolstering border security, law enforcement, intelligence of our partners. The key issues, though, as I, as I noted earlier, it's the governance gaps and the grievances that are driving recruitment on the ground for the Islamic State. And creating a more authoritarian, a more capable state could also drive recruitment for the Islamic State, making the problem worse. Um, it's just a cycle that we're stuck in, where we are going to be relying on drone strikes and on local security forces to solve 
a fundamentally challenging, complex problem set. And after, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, there was a huge shift towards China as the pacing threat, obviously Russia as the acute threat. Nobody's talking about counterterrorism right now. No one is talking about counterterrorism. It's a major challenge. Uh, and it's one that doesn't go away because even though we've degraded the leadership and we've reduced the threat in certain aspects from the Islamic State and from Al Qaeda and other terror groups, uh, it doesn't mean the threat is gone. All right. Well, Catherine, I appreciate you coming into the program and hopefully we won't have to talk about this again. <laughs> if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gargis. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people, in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5 because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016 and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it 
because we use the artificial intelligence to to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's going to be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.